Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Out in the cold, out in the dark, something's lurking at the edge of the park. People be warned, people beware, there's a storm on the rise and it's covered in hair. Hear him cry, hear him howl, looking for someone to disembowel. Claws like a hook, eyes like coal, feet so big they're gonna crush your soul. They call him Sasquatch. Welcome to Yowie Central, or Menjika. Welcome in our local Jara language. You're on 94.9 Main FM and you're with Sarah Bignall. This is the community radio show where we bring you the latest on Yowie research in Australia and we delve into the vast and fascinating realm of Bigfoot, Sasquatch and cryptozoology from here and around the world. A couple of weeks ago, it was my 50th show, which was very exciting, and I interviewed by phone the founder of Australian Yowie Research, Dean Harrison, for the show. But as sometimes happens in radio, we had some technical difficulties. We both have new audio equipment and neither of us are sound engineers. So we recorded our first chat with the audio levels too high and it sounded really distorted on playing it back. So I, I was not so happy with that audio quality. So we recorded our chat again recently, covering the same topics as last time, but we also went off on a few different tangents So, because we ended up talking about some new stuff, I thought I'd play it again for you today, the re-recorded version. We're still working on getting the audio levels just right, but it was an improvement on the last time. We'll get there. So, here is the first part of my chat with the legendary founder of Australian Yowie Research, Mr. Dean Harrison. I hope you enjoy it. (laughs) 
Dean, my friend, welcome back to Yowie Central. Hi, Sarah. Thanks for having me. You've been out on a few field research expeditions lately where you've been menaced by snakes, had to swim to safety and rescue your very expensive gear from sinking on your MacGyver-made raft, almost lost your toenails and endured an exhausting 12-hour hike, and most recently had to kayak into a remote spot in the middle of the night and had a yowie growl at you three times. No rest for the wicked. <laughs> well, uh, the most disturbing part about that is uh, I'm not going to win any beauty contests with these toenails. <laughs> and trust me, tr- the listeners out there, I've seen a photo of them. They look manky, <laughs> all bluesed and black. <laughs> we, we've been very active lately, Sarah, as you know, up around the Gold Coast Hinterland, the Springbrook area. Uh, we've had several operations uh, on top of the mountain and more recently heading down the mountain towards um, the Nunnambar Valley. I did a video recently which you have seen and it reflected back on sightings from yesteryear on the Gold Coast and also our own expedition, say, 20, 22 years ago, and adding in some footage from back then with some of the signs that we used to find. Now, amongst these finds uh, or signs, uh, there were... Well, I'd have to say very unique to Springbrook because you don't find these just everywhere. And what I'm referring to is the sticks in the ground. Now, the sticks in the ground is something that we were recording, again, 20-plus years ago, and we're still finding the same thing today. We just think that it's unique to this clan. And I was asked about clans uh, several weeks ago, do I believe that there are different clans there and do you think their personalities are different? Well, yes, I do. And I think... That the clans, depending on, uh, for a better term, how they were raised uh, and how they interact with humans, I think these ones are, are very, very well behaved uh, to the point where I'd almost say boring. Um, they, <laughs> they, they seem to make they, they seem to leave signs for each other. Now, people say, well, what, what does this signify? Uh, the, X, the X's, for example, will find crosses on the ground, and generally it'd be about the same size stick, uh, and it. There'll be two of them and they'll be crossed over, that perfect cross. And we'd find a lot of these on the tracks and the trails. And uh, if we go off the trail... We'll find those uh, off in, into, the, uh, into the scrub where you won't find any humans. Uh, we found a triangle, which was very interesting. But above all, what we're finding is the sticks in the ground. So the sticks in the ground, they can be so thick that for a human to drive it through that hard ground and into the, into the ground, say... In, in some uh, instances, uh, maybe four, five, six inches. And we're talking about sticks that may be three, four inches wide. And so, first of all, you have to get through the thick grass cover and the leaf litter. Then you've got to get through the ground. And when we're, when we're finding these, obviously the first thing you're going to look at is where did it come from? So you look up. In a lot of the instances, you won't find a tree. So it didn't fall. Now, when it comes to the smaller sticks, now some of them are only perhaps three, four, five, six millimetres thick and extremely light. So if they did fall from a tree, they would more than likely fall sideways, land sideways. But if they did land directly spearing into the ground, they're not going to break through the grass and they won't break through the leaf litter 
and they certainly won't penetrate the ground for you know, two inches. So again, they have been placed there and it's something that's been going on there for 20 plus years that we're aware of. One of our earlier expeditions was probably September up the top of uh, Springbrook and there was a team of us at the time and we didn't have a lot to report that night. There are a few interesting sounds that crept in during the night that we thought was quite positive but using the flare in the night vision we found that they were nothing uh, significant. So after spending time there we decided we'd go down the hill um, and there was only three of us on this occasion which was fortunate uh, because sometimes not all plans work out. On the way down, we cut through virgin forest, and this is a place where nobody's been for a long time. Uh, and I, I estimate probably 60, 70 years. I mean, it's virgin bush, and it's viney, it's, it has lantana, it's unhospitable. You just don't want to walk through there. And the snakes, the snakes were everywhere. They were going left, right, and centre. I've never seen so many snakes in my life. And I've, I've spent a lot of time in the bush and I've never experienced as many snakes as we did on this particular day. Wow. Now, when we've got off the beaten track, and again, this is where we like to go because then we know we're not you know, being confused with you know, human signs and silly things that humans may do out there. We are in the middle of the thickest rainforest. Uh, when I say thick, I'm talking about branches that you've got to climb under and over and vines you have to navigate through. And then we come to an area where it was a little clearer and what do we find? We find the sticks in the ground again. And there's nowhere for them to fall and quite often the sticks are foreign to the trees around them anyway. So here are sticks. I think there's about three of them from memory. And beside the sticks are a series of footprints, 18-inch footprints, Incredible. That's huge. So we're really encouraged by these signs because we knew that there was no human influence. We couldn't be confused with, with any sort of human activity whatsoever. We were the first people down there in a lot of years, as I was saying. So we documented those um, and we went further and further. and went. Uh, we got down to a creek bed and again, the snakes are everywhere. We're still finding partial footprints and a few sticks in the ground. Um, and we had, I was with Gary at the time, Gary Lynn, and we were walking on both sides of the creek bed, uh, the left side and the right side. And from the right side, we crossed over to the left side and kept walking up. And if we had to kept to the right, one of us probably would have been tagged by an Eastern Brown it was underneath uh, a rock ledge. So basically, as we're jumping off rock from rock, we would have landed right next to it. Uh, so we've gone to the, the the left, and here is the eastern brown curled up in stri- a striking position. Uh, mm-hmm. I documented that. Uh, you've probably seen it. Yeah, I saw the photo. <laughs> as I actually turned, I filmed it for a little bit, and as I turned to walk away, I didn't see it, but Gary said it actually struck at me. And uh, now if you get tagged by an Eastern Brown, you've got about 30 minutes to live. We had no phone reception. Even if we did find phone reception, in the amount of time that would have taken, you'd be dead already. Now, if you did make phone reception and you organised a care flight helicopter to come uh, after you try and work out where you are and give them the coordinates, again, you'd be dead Many times over, so it was really dangerous, and none of them, none of us were wearing uh, gaiters, and we should have. The gaiters are protective; um, uh, it was protective uh, material that will cover your shins and your lower legs from snake bite. 
Um, so anyway, we we found ourselves in a situation where we couldn't go back up the hill. We had to keep going. So we devised a plan. We'd walk around a dam and it seemed simple enough uh, in theory. It wasn't quite that easy. We found that the side of the dam was uh, 45 degrees, so you couldn't actually get grip in certain areas. And even if you did, there's debris and there's, there's logs and all sorts of things uh across the edge of the dam in all these different places. And so we had to keep going up into the hill and back down again and up and down. And this is really taxing on your body. And we, were, well, I in particular was getting really dehydrated, so that resulted in cramps. Uh, and the knees started to go and, and so forth. And we were out there for hours and hours and hours and we were just making no progress and we're sweating and we're hurting and, and we're, we're, we're avoiding snakes. At one stage, Tony... Tony was leaning up against a hollowed out tree log and we're having a conversation and he just casually turns around and he's face to face with another snake. <laughs> oh my God. It was, sitting, it was sitting right behind his head. It sounds like Indiana Jones. <laughs> and, you know, you've got all the, the snakes that are crossing over the dam. Uh, they're all swimming across the water and they're all in the long grass and you hear them going as you're walking and they're right next to you. And, and then Gary leaps off a rock Mid-flight, he looks down and hears a brown snake in a figure eight and, oh. and he lands one foot right in the middle of the figure eight. My God. <laughs> As I said in the video, I said they both levitated about six feet in the air. Yeah, that's right. Fortunately, the, the brown snake went in, a, in an opposite direction and because uh, that just could have wound up so much worse. It was just terrible. Oh, just, yeah, close call. So, we got to the stage where – we knew we were in trouble because our bodies were breaking down. We weren't getting anywhere and we weren't going to make it out by night. Keep in mind that we started at 7 o'clock in the morning and we're supposed to be out by lunchtime. And now we're in a situation where we're thinking we're going to find a rescue team coming to look for us because we couldn't phone out anywhere and uh, we didn't think we were going to make it out that night. So we devised a plan that we would have to make a raft and the first one we, we dubbed SOS Springbrook One. <laughs> uh, Tony was the foreman on that, and, uh, <laughs> and uh, sadly, it, it sunk before its voyage. <laughs> uh, then uh, Tony and uh, Gary made SOS Two. That was a little bit more stable, but we all had gear in our backpacks, and we were, we were concerned about losing it. Me in particular, because I had some pretty expensive stuff in there. Nothing was water protected because we didn't count on this. We didn't think we were going to be having to swim. So we'd, we'd stripped off and, again, here's three naked men on the side of the, the dam and uh, we're, we're putting our, our gear on this raft made of sticks and then we started to swim. And just as we get to the other side of this little alcove, because that's all we were aiming for at that time was to get across an alcove, the raft starts to sink. I was a little bit further away from the raft than Gary and Tony and I yelled out to Gary to grab my, save my backpack basically. And uh, he reaches out for it and then sort of retracts and he goes, I can't. He said, there's a scorpion on it. I go, of course there's a scorpion on my backpack. Why wouldn't there be? <laughs> so I've rushed over there. I've swam over there and I've grabbed it and I've flung it up onto the shore. And you know, also keep in mind that while we're doing all this, we're dodging snakes swimming towards us across the water. In the water. In the water, yeah. So my, my backpack landed safely and it didn't roll down, thankfully. I'd lost my hiking stick during that process and then Gary went to throw his backpack onto the shore and as he did so, his wedding ring came off and 
landed in the murky water and never to be seen again. (laughs) Poor Gary. (laughs) Yeah, so we went to hike for a bit further and we were just getting more broken and broken. Well, again, particularly myself, and I was at the stage where I couldn't bend my legs. I was cramping up and to get over logs, I'd have to climb up onto it and basically roll over and just drop on the ground and then pull myself back up again. That's the state I was in. So with that in mind and, you know, it's mid to late afternoon now, uh, we know that we're not going to make it out by dusk. So we had to make another raft. And thankfully, Gary took charge of that. I mean, myself and Tony, we were a little bit sceptical when Gary brought it up, that I'll make another raft and we're going to have to swim away <laughs> all the way out. We was like, yeah, we, we've sort of tried that and it didn't work. But now, luckily, Gary, he, he came to the party and he built a – a really strong-looking raft out of wood uh, that he put together, which we called, <laughs> obviously, Springbrook SOS3 or SOS3 Springbrook. And, uh, and away we went. And we were in the water for an hour and a half. And I was cramping oh. up the whole time and Tony started to cramp up as well. And all you could hear is just three, three naked guys grunting for an hour and a half. <laughs> we're limping our way across the, across the dam and uh, we we finally got out. Eventually, we got out just on dark. So yeah, that was very fortunate. See, I remember you telling me just getting out of the water at the dam. So there's a dam wall there. All three of you exhausted, cramping, and you had to somehow get yourselves up that dam wall as well, didn't you? Yeah, that was one of the most daunting aspects. Uh, we, we we didn't plan. On any of this, uh, we didn't. We particularly didn't plan on a hard exit as far as the dam. We thought we'd find somewhere that's you know, easy to navigate. We would uh, simply just walk out of the water, but it wasn't to be so. Uh, we had the dam wall, and on the left hand side, it was basically a sheer rock face. Now, as we got to that point, my left leg cramped up like never before. In fact. It, it, it had curled up uh, basically and I couldn't straighten it and I, was, I, I just kept sinking and I had to keep grasping onto the side and just to keep my head above water and I was in so much pain, I was physically yelling, uh, I couldn't contain it, that's how bad it was. And then Tony said to Gary, quick, uh, swim over there and pull his legs straight and point his toes back to him. So he did that and it really helped. But the problem was we had this – this wall, this, this this rock face to navigate. And Gary said to Tony, I just don't think Dean can make it. There's two sides of that. There was the fact that physically I was in bad shape, but also mentally I get vertigo. And when it comes to things <laughs> like rock climbing, you know, I'm not too good at that. And we'd already done a lot of rock climbing to get down into the dam. And we're talking about gripping on with your fingers into crevices and your toes and all that sort of thing. And you know, one slip and you're in trouble. Uh, so now we just had this last leg. I mean, if, if everything else wasn't enough, now I had to navigate this. Tony went first. Gary was behind me. He catch me. It was daunting. I mean, it was daunting mentally because I know how I struggle with heights and I have a reoccurring dream. I've always had it of this type of situation. And it was probably stemmed from when I was about eight years old and I, I fell off a cliff and went down about 300 metres at a place called uh-huh. Apollo Bay in Victoria. Uh-huh. 
Um, and I wasn't, I wasn't supposed to live apparently according to doctors. I had to have a, a kid, yeah, right. an air flight out of there and they basically said, no, we don't think he's going to make it. Whether that's got anything to do with, with my dreams of slipping and not being able to grip, etc. um, I don't know, but anyway, it, it's just a mental thing that, that I have. And, uh, so getting up there and not seeing or having confidence in what you're supposed to grip next and where your next foot's going to go and yeah it was a bit daunting but long story short uh we got to the top it was all fine but geez i tell you what the feeling of being on firm ground was amazing (laughs) and you were an absolute wreck for days afterwards weren't you (laughs) probably about four days to be able to walk properly yeah and then your toenails started turning black (laughs) yeah but the, the gluttons for punishment, two weeks later, we were back at it again. We'd taken canoes this time. We went to a place where, and this is on the side of the mountain, that during drought times, this is where they come up from. And uh, after this expedition, if I, I couldn't walk last time, I couldn't move after this one. Everything was shot, lower back, everything. I mean, carrying those canoes at the end of the night, one kilometre upwards with all your gear in it and you've got a kayak each oh geez louise that was really harsh work and uh, i couldn't walk i couldn't move for you know for a long time after that one yeah but that was an interesting one because we went to an area where as i said we've always wanted to go it is just so remote out there you can live your whole life out there and never be discovered if you don't want to it's a spooky place you just had that feeling that anything could happen. And you would have seen on the video, in fact, I sent you some photos of that uh, anomaly in the tree. Uh, yeah, so, that's right. So I think Tony had looked up and goes, what is this? So we've looked up and here's a silhouette, a human silhouette sitting high up in a tree and it looked like it was pointing with its arm. So Gary's lit it up and it's, we had to stare at it for a long time to make sure this wasn't moving. And it really did look like a human form. It was a perfect human form, but it was just an anomaly of of the growth at the top of this tree. So during the night, I mean, we'd heard of quite a few things, but we're using the the flare and we're using the night vision, etc. And we weren't picking up on anything. There's at some stage there were a few tree knocks, and there was what we could possibly classify as a vocal. But um, there was one stage where Tony saw a set of eyes from just down the stream on the other side of the creek and the orange in colour, they're looking at us, they're watching us. So he's lit up the area and this thing turns and it goes back up into the, into the forest. So Buck and Tony went to investigate. They measured the lantana where the eyes were and they estimated the height of this creature to have been 10 feet tall. 10 feet tall, that is enormous. Shortly after then, myself and Gary joined them, and Gary's got a very keen eye, and it wasn't long before he started to spot the footprints. And there's a lot of footprints, and they're coming in and out of the forest. Now, there's no rhyme or reason for there to be footprints in this area because there aren't no humans there. You do not get humans. You cannot walk there. That was really, really interesting. We wrapped it up at about 3 o'clock in the morning, and we headed back. And again, here's this gruelling task of getting out and uh, uh, Tony had already stepped on a, a brown snake during the first half of the, the mission. So we, okay. we had to 
hike all of our gear out and again he's you know four guys groaning and puffing and dragging our gear and we finally got back up to the vehicle the guys were down near a gate and i'd walked up there by myself just to drop off uh, a couple of things and i've turned around in the darkness uh, okay i'll just paint the scene for you it's in the middle of thick bush there's a road a made road the vehicle is parked on the lower side. On the other side of the road, there's a rise. So basically it's where the road's been cut into the side of the hill. So it rises up. Now, above me is standing this creature. Now, I couldn't see him, but I could hear him walking. And there was several times, I think even Gary and Tony had mentioned that, yeah, there's something walking up there. And I'd heard it, and I thought, yeah, that does sound bipedal. And... But because we were so exhausted and our bodies had all broken down at 3.30 in the morning, your tolerance levels are pretty low and you don't have a lot of interest in anything other than just getting out of there. And uh, so here is this creature above me and he starts to growl. Now, this wasn't a growl directed at me per se. This is a growl of frustration that we were there and he's angry and he's trying to contain it. That's the feeling I got from it. It was, it was more of a type noise. It, it, was, it was like he wanted to let it out, but he was containing it. He's containing it. He was, he was <laughs> keeping it in. And so he did two of these. Now, the first one was, was quite long. As I said, it was like... Like so, and then the second one was longer again, but it sort of it sort of peaked a little bit towards the end, a bit more anger involved towards the end of the second one. It was exactly what we wanted at the start of the night, not at the end. Yeah, <laughs> um, yeah as as I said in the in the expedition video, you know, you, you don't have to go to great lengths, you don't have to go to to the far reaches. A Yowie encounter can happen anywhere. And even right next to where your vehicle's parked. So we really didn't have to go to all that effort, did we? No, you could have just stayed by the car. <laughs> so is that what you're going to do? You're going again tomorrow, aren't you? Yeah. Yeah, we're, we're all really excited. Um, we've just got our second thermal. We have the Fleur and now we have our next thermal. So we have, we'll have two in the group. Plus uh, we've got a couple of really great quality Bushnell uh, night vision cameras with this equipment, we're in with a pretty good chance. I'm excited about this one because it's not a huge physical task to get to a remote area. It's somewhere – I mean, yeah, we, we, there'll be plenty of hiking involved, sure, and there'll be plenty of hills, sure, but it's not going to be to the extremes that we've been uh, in the last few months. I think what I'm excited about the most, other than just knowing that this thing is there – he's a male, obviously – is the fact that – he had that growl and the fact that he was upset that we were there. Uh, obviously, he t- this is his territory and what are you guys doing here? The fact that he has that mentality, the fact that he has that anger, it could put us in a pretty good position. Um, now, he had a lot of interest. See, we made a lot of noise when we were coming back to the, the vehicles. I think he's heard that. And he's come to look. Now, he could have been on the lower ground where we were, but he's gone to the higher ground where he's got the best vantage point. 
So he's, he was up there for a reason. So he get he could see us, and he could see us from all angles. So he's probably heard us long before we we arrived. And uh, yeah, he was just there. But when he saw us, he just couldn't contain himself. He just had to. Uh, I'm quietly confident that if we spend enough time there we may have some more interactions and what I've said to the guys is pretty much let's not flood the area with white light let's keep white light to the minimum let's try not to point white light into the forest sure use a dim white light to watch where you're going and all that sort of thing a head torch is okay but don't use anything intimidating because we want him to stay there. So what, what had happened after he growled is that we, everybody had just lit up the area with you know, spotlights and that was the last we saw of him. So we don't want to do that again. We just wanted to just keep him close and make him feel a little bit more confident and uh, hopefully he'll have enough interest to, to follow us around. What are the chances that he might be dangerous? Like if that was a perhaps – Warning, get out of here, I don't like you here, and you're annoying me. <laughs> Do you think there's a possibility of something happening like um, like you've experienced before where they've run at you and pushed you out of the way? I don't trust any of them. Even Fatfoot, when I was interacting with him, and as friendly as he was, there's still an element that you just won't trust because there's, yeah. there's an element of the unknown with this, we don't know him. We don't know his character. We don't know his personality. Now, he was behaving like that when there was four of us. I wouldn't like to be out there by myself, put it that way. No, that would be a bit scary. Dean Harrison, founder of Australian Yowie Research and creator of the most comprehensive Yowie sighting database in the world. You're listening to Yowie Central on 94.9 Main FM, the best little station in the nation. Lead singer of Bando Road, Brett Young, wrote this fantastic tune about the Doolaga, which for those who don't know is an Aboriginal name for the big fella, the hairy man. I played it for you a couple of weeks ago, but it's so good I'm spinning it for you again. Hello? Anybody there? Oh, bugger. He earned his fame in many names from hill to desert sands. He tears with ease the money trees with huge and harmony hands. He walks the night, his eyes are light, his teeth are chiseled blades. The baddest bastard in the bush and other accolades. He ain't afraid of water made, he tunnels and he climbs. And on the ground he's been around since Mega Fallen Times. The homie her and omnivore will take what he can find. And when you think you're gonna peg, he'll hit you from behind. The crews of Australia were right to bloody fear. The things he did, he'll take the kids, you'll tremble when you hear. Completely unpredictable, a little like a wife. He'll sever all your normal like a knife. You see him and he change your bloody life, yeah. A hero of a hairy man of Julia. The nasty bloody scary man of Julia. The legend in the first of fucking Julia. You really shouldn't mess around with Julia. 
I'll laugh at all the city types and say he can't exist. But reckon all the witnesses were wasted with a piss. But pretty soon they'll change their tune, they know he got it wrong. Sometimes Geek from City says he's been there all along. Of course he bloody hard to wait hide if I was him. Cause man, a bloody bastard's on the yard to pretty slam. But getting perfect because I believe it must be said. He ain't about for sticking out his head. My body's falling down the river bed, yeah. A hero and a hairy man, a Julie Gall. The Nazi bloody scary man, a Julie Gall. The legend in the first of all, a Julie Gall. You really shouldn't mess around with Julie Gall. A hero and a hairy man, a Julie Gall. The Nazi bloody scary man, a Julie Gall. The legend in the first of all, a Julie Gall. You really shouldn't mess around with Julie Gall. Julie Gall. Brett Young with Dooligar. Wasn't that awesome? Such a catchy tune. Remember, if you've had an encounter with a Yowie or you've seen a ghost or you've had a scary UFO experience or any other weird paranormal stuff going on, get in touch with me via yowiecentral at gmail.com or via the Yowie Central Facebook group. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. In part two of my chat with the fascinating Dean Harrison of Australian Yowie Research, we talk about Yowie clans And we also talk about what drives him to spend so much of his time and energy and money on researching and documenting Yowies. And we also go into a couple of our favourite cases. Check it out. I remember you saying to me something recently about how you believe that depending on the area and depending on what, whether younger juvenile Yowies have been taught how to interact with humans by their parents, it could impact on their behaviour as adults. Different areas, different clans, maybe a different subspecies perhaps. Mm, there's another thought. Yeah, I think they're, they're all raised differently. I think the Clans that are raised on the fringe of human society, I think they are taught differently to the ones that are in more remote areas that probably don't give a damn. 
I, I think there'll be a, a code of ethics, so to speak, particularly on the fringe areas because they don't want to expose themselves. But when it comes to some of the areas like Kilkeven and Woolgoolga, the Gympie region where we've spent a lot of time in the Wide Bay area of Queensland, they seem to be more aggressive there. I wonder why. Perhaps this is just the way they're raised. And we think that there is generally a, uh, a dominant male in each clan and he seems to be the person who calls the shots. But if you've got that dominant male that's uh, a little bit too aggressive, then he's got no one to control him. Like your mate in Ormo. There's another classic example. Now, that one was totally out of control. He was causing all sorts of grief. There's a funny story about that too. Because after the uh, – I'm not quite sure if I told you this, but after the woodcutter, uh, his name was Jason, after he had his dramatic experience with the Ormo Yowie and was, was chased basically back to his car, he drove round to certain areas – and asked the locals what they knew. He saw a woman in the garden of one home, and this house backed onto the same area of the bush, and I think he explained what had happened, and then he said, you just see in her eyes that her mind was ticking, and she said that she had a son who had an imaginary friend in the bush behind the house. I have all the details on this, and I have spoken to the woman, by the way, too. But the story was, the interesting part of the story is that the son said, well, actually, the son called him Willie, which I think is rather unmasculine, <laughs> considering, <laughs> considering how, how aggressive he was, and I don't think he'd be pleased with that name anyway. According to the little boy, said that he has to go now. He's not going to live here anymore, and he's going back up into the mountains to be with his family. Now, after oh. this happened, we never saw him again. That is fascinating. I don't know. I don't think you didn't mention that to me. That's really interesting. So that was in the same area, in the Ormo area? Yeah, yeah. It was the same one that, that, uh, that chased me, the one that wanted me, and, and the, the one was causing all the havoc in the area between uh, 97 and about 2003 to five. But isn't it interesting, though, that the reaction to – Adults, and specifically adult males, to adult human males, it was extremely aggressive. This is very similar to circumstances where you'll find women on a rural property or an acreage, something that backs onto bush. Uh, normally this happens with single females and single females with children, well, particularly if they have children, and they're living out there alone. Now, if along the timeline of the woman living there, she makes a male friend, a human male friend, and this human male starts turning up at the house. Um, boy, you know, things can really go wrong. Yeah. They seem to be very protective of the women and children in the house. You know, as I say to a lot of these witnesses, they know you a lot better than what you think they know you. They will know the sound of your car. They'll know the sound of your car when you're coming home, when you're leaving. They know what time you go to work, what time you get home. They know all your movements, what you do on a day-to-day -day ritual, and you've got no idea that they're watching you, and they know so mm -hmm. much about you, you have no idea. So they, they build a bond with the women and the children, and then the, this protective thing sort of kicks in. But when a human male turns up on the scene, they don't like it. 
No, not at all. Uh, Dean, I just I wanted to ask you, I'm fascinated, what drives you to keep spending pretty much all of your time and, and hours and hours and hours of time documenting, interviewing, researching? What, what drives you to keep going? You've been doing it for such a long time. It probably stemmed originally from the encounter at Ormo where I felt, I still feel like I nearly lost my life that night and after you have those feelings, uh, you just can't let it go. And particularly when it comes down to something such as this that shouldn't even exist, shouldn't be here. So it just turns into a, a passion. It's a, it's a true passion. It's a part of my life. In fact, it is my life. And uh, it's also a part of my identity. It's quite a journey. Now, you've been doing this for quite some time. In fact, you're up to your 50th yeah. show, I believe. Yes, I am. I am up to my 50th show. How exciting. Who'd have thunk it? It's been uh, so much fun. It's been such a ride to go from to go from not really knowing what I was doing, but just having this passion and this interest in cryptozoology and then starting the show and somehow making it to 50 shows. And not only that, but now working very closly with you and with Tony Healy and Paul Cropper, it's it's kind of like my dream come true that I that to, for me to suddenly be completely immersed in the subject that I've been most interested in and passionate about my whole life to suddenly be doing this work with you and with Tony and Paul is so exciting. It, I I have to pinch myself regularly to go. Oh, I'm actually I'm actually doing something that I've always wanted to do, and it's just amazing. It's amazing. I feel very fortunate. And I feel very grateful to you. You, you gave me, you gave me a, an opportunity um, that I have jumped into and absolutely love. I can't imagine not doing it now. You're obviously very instrumental in AYR now. In fact, you're, you're a part of the family. We couldn't do what we do now without your help, without you being there. Now, I think the reason that you have so many supporters in AYR and, and elsewhere, so many fans – is because you have such a cathartic and empathetic energy during your interviews, which everyone can adhere to. 50 shows, that's terrific. I wouldn't be surprised if you know, we got to 150 <laughs> within no time. Um, <laughs> now you just have such a, such a big following. People absolutely adore you. Uh, I thank you for all the work that you do to help us because we, we couldn't have got through this workload without you. Now, as I said, you are a part of the family, and above all, I think you're a, you're one of my best friends now. Oh, right back at you, right back at you. I would say exactly the same thing to you. <laughs> you're my people. <laughs> Out of all the interviews you've conducted for AYR, which for you would you consider to be the standout? Well, I probably probably Hickey's Falls. One because. It was such an incredible encounter and just amazing. But but it's had over forty six thousand views on YouTube, for, and and it's it's clearly of late one of the ones that people that resonated uh, with the fans, the AYR community out there. Yeah, probably the one that resonated with me the most. But the thing is, almost everyone does. There's something really special in people sharing something that's often really traumatic and they've sat on and maybe been ridiculed about 
for for years and f- for them to feel like they can share that story with me knowing that they they're trusting me to do that is such an honor it's it's a privilege uh, i i absolutely love it but perhaps the, bi- the the biggest one for me was was hickey's falls for sure I'm sure you'll agree with me for a lot of these people, it's a, a life-changing experience, something that they, they'll never forget uh, for as long as they live. And with certain people, they are also adversely affected. Forever, like uh, people who, are, who have PTSD, who have needed to take medication to help them get through their feelings of trauma, help them sleep, help them try and, you know, not make sense of what's happened to them. We have probably two sides of the coin. We have people who embrace their encounter, uh, probably because it wasn't that dramatic and they just find that, you know, they feel privileged to have had that experience. But on the other side of the coin, you have the people who have more of a, a dramatic experience and it's disturbing to them and it's something that they can't let go, they can't sleep at night. And they find, quite a few people have found, that they feel that they're not quite the same again. Yeah. The case in Bungle Bungle, Bungle Bungle, I should say, sorry, the imagery of her driving in her car and seeing something huge running behind her car, keeping up with her car at 90 90 plus kilometres per hour, rearing up onto two legs, still running as fast, and then jumping over her car – that story as well, I just blew my mind. It was the – it sounds like a movie. It doesn't sound real. It happened to her. So what the hell is it? What, what? How does that happen and how terrifying for her? Out of a lot of the people that have been adversely affected by their, their encounters, the one that stands out in my mind the most is uh, a case in a location called Gungura in Victoria. It's just on the uh-huh. – border of uh, New South Wales and uh, in Victoria near the Snowy Mountain Ranges. And uh, this this guy was in his ute and he's driving on back roads. It's sort of semi-made, uh, semi-dirt uh, road. And it's the middle of the night, no phone reception, in the middle of absolute nowhere, in the middle of the mountains. And uh, he's driving along and from the right-hand side, he sees this bipedal creature come down and it leaps right in front of the car basically and he just misses clipping it on the left hand bull bar now and then it goes down the the lower descent on the left hand side now he's pulled his car up promptly and he's sitting there in shock of what he just saw he had a extremely close look at it and um, he's sitting there he's picked up his phone to check reception and see if he can get a gps coordinate etc he had his foot on the brake lighting up everything behind him now, in the rear vision mirror, he sees this creature coming back, but it's coming up the side of the hill, and he sees the top of the head, half a head, the full head, the head and shoulders. It's getting bigger and bigger as it's walking up, and now it's on the road and it's walking towards his car. So he's put it into first gear, and he's floored it, and this thing starts to run after him. He puts it into second gear. It's catching him pretty quick. 
He puts it into third gear. This thing's still catching him. He's got his window down. He's feeling vulnerable, and this thing is catching him, doing a remarkable speed. He's got the top end of third gear, puts it into fourth, and he starts to peel away from it. As he does this, this thing lets out this massive scream, a blood-curdling scream. But the thing that affected him the most was the fact that its eyes were blinking sideways. Like right. like, a, like a reptilian, he said. He said he's never seen anything right. like it. But funnily enough, it's not the first time we've heard this. We've heard this before. Mm. Uh, why? No idea. Another one, another one of these strange anomalies. Its eyes were glowing yellow, but they were blinking sideways. Now, he had an awful time dealing with this. He wasn't coping at all. Uh, he used to phone me often, just wanting to talk it out. He went and saw a counsellor at one stage, which I I said, look, it's probably not a good idea to see a counsellor because, number one, they're not going to be able to empathise with your situation because they don't have any experience themselves in this field. And second, you know, most of these people in that industry, well, they probably come from a you know, pretty sceptical sort of background anyway. Um, so... <laughs> After seeing a counsellor, he said, I actually came out feeling worse than when I walked in. And he, he struggled a long, long time. And I've spoken to a lot of people, as you have, Sarah, uh, who find it hard getting a full night's sleep. And this is still years after the event. I do remember. And this is for uh, the listeners out there. Uh, if if you have had a traumatic experience and you need to speak to a professional, we have had a, a professional psychologist, she is a psychologist, isn't she? The woman who'd had her own sighting but was also a psychologist and offered if there was anyone who's, who was really needing professional support that she could she could offer that because she'd seen one herself. Yeah, and it's, it's good to have that backing those people on your side. And if you have a professional, trained professional, as you say, offering these services uh, – but also had their own experience, so they, they can put themselves in your shoes, they can empathise, um, they do understand. And I think that's what a lot of people need, is just someone who understands. And someone who, who doesn't automatically think they're crazy and dismisses what they've seen as as a delusion or a hallucination or drug-induced hallucination or um, psychosis of some kind. And this is where where I find a lot of your interviews very pertinent because, as we know, a lot of the witnesses, they're very apprehensive about coming forward. And with your cathartic nature, you seem to bring down those walls and people feel comfortable to talk to you with confidence. Yeah, that's 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 really nice. I, I don't know. Well, partly partly it's due to my training working with traumatized people as a social worker and working in in the field of of uh, victims assistance. I've I've had a lot of experience dealing with people who who really need to who who are deeply significantly traumatized. And I guess it's partly that. But I I I also really I just really like talking to <laughs> talking to people too. And I. I feel like if someone is honouring me by sharing their story, then it's really, really important that I make them feel comfortable and that they f- and that they can trust me. I'm not going to sh- share their name with anyone if they don't wish it to be shared. I'm not going to reveal their location if if uh, they prefer not to be, and I'm going to listen and believe them. 
you know, the vast majority. I don't, I don't think I've spoken to anyone yet who I've really thought, nah, I don't, I don't know about this person. I think they're, I think they're hoaxing us or, you know, I haven't, I haven't come across anybody like that. What about you? Have you come across anyone like that? They're very few and far between, actually. Most people just can't be bothered. Uh, a lot of – if someone is going to hoax, you pretty much pick it up in the submission. Um, you'll pick it up with what yeah. they've written, uh, the way they write and what they say. Um, but, no, I, I haven't really experienced that too much. Uh, we've been quite fortunate, actually. Not too many crazies out there who've got the time and energy to, you know, work out a story, you know, write a submission to us and keep it up then in a in an interview with and you and I are not easily fooled. So it'd be a big, a, a lot of effort to set up a hoax. I think that's what a lot of people don't understand when they, people who don't or aren't really into researching this subject and they think, oh, there, it must be, there must be people out there walking around in, homemade gorilla suits or something. It's all hoaxes. The amount of energy required to mount a hoax uh, is significant and I think most people couldn't be bothered. Yeah, yeah. Well, it all comes down to people being sceptics and uh, finding excuses of why this can't happen, I guess. (laughs) Even like that sceptic, the president of the sceptic society who'd actually seen one himself but refused to admit that to himself that he'd actually seen one. An amazing interaction between myself and uh, a gentleman by the name of, I think, Mark Newbridge. He was the second in charge of the Australian Skeptic, Australian Skeptic Society, and <laughs> we had locked horns for about two years. And it was really confrontational. Some of some of the messages we'd be sending to each other and the conversations that we would have because he was just an absolute deniest. Uh, I mean, it, it, to the point where it made no sense. And you could pr- produce the facts. You can. Black and white, you cannot deny this, and no, because it doesn't happen. But why doesn't happen? Because it just doesn't. It's impossible. Why is it impossible? Because it just is. Now you can't <laughs> you can't argue with someone who is of that mindset where it just is. I don't have a reason why it can't happen. It just can't. You can't have a normal <laughs> debate with someone like that. And then after the two years of this locking horns, he eventually says to me, well, you know what? I've actually had my own sighting myself. What, a yowie sighting? Yeah, yeah, I've had my own yeah. Oh, my, what? 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 I'm sorry you're saying what? So what had happened, the synopsis is, it was in uh, Dalesford, Victoria, and uh, he had a full-on, full-view, close-up sighting encounter with this yowie it was right in front of him. He soaked in the, all the details. It's there. And I said, after all this time, all this denial, you're still saying, even if you've seen it with your own eyes, you're still saying to me, they don't exist. No, they don't. <laughs> now I go, oh, this is impossible. It's like arguing with a child. And, uh, yes. and he, basically what he said was, you know, unless I had a team of professionals with me at the time, uh, we are taking photos of it and video footage from every single angle and then we uh, we either get hair and blood samples from it or take away the body. It doesn't exist. And like, what? Really? Come on. What? I mean, <laughs> you know, I mean, yeah, and I think that was pretty much my last conversation with him. I'd, after hearing that, I just gave up. 
Yeah, you would. I mean, it's it's nonsensical that kind of his his kind of reaction. Well, it is. I've, I've seen nonsense. one, but it's not, but it's impossible. And I'll only believe if I get a blood sample. I mean, really, it's it's. But said, but you saw it. Yep, and it was real. Yes, yes, it was. But they don't exist. No, they don't. No. That was Dalesford. And I said, oh, I, I just don't understand. Explain to me more how you could have that mindset. And he says, because I'm not allowed, as an academic, I'm not allowed to believe everything my eyes see. I think that was his excuse. Yeah, right. Yeah. Well, Dean, thank you so much for joining me on my on my 50th show. It wouldn't have been the same without you. Uh, I really appreciate you. You coming on and sharing all your fantastic stories with us. Happy 50th, Sarah, and I hope there'll be another 50 more. And thank you again for all the work you do for AYR. There's people out there that absolutely adore you, including myself. Oh, thanks, Dean. Thank you. <laughs> and that was Dean Harrison of Australian Yowie Research. If you've had a Yowie encounter and you want to share it with the Main FM community, send me an email to yowiecentral at gmail.com or send me a message via the Yowie Central Facebook group. That's all we've got time for this week, folks. I'll catch you next week. Out in the cold, out in the dark, something's lurking at the edge of the park. People be warned, people beware, there's a storm on the rise and it's covered in hair. Hear him cry, hear him howl, looking for someone to disembowel. Claws like a hook, eyes like coal, feet so big they're gonna crush your soul. They call him Sasquatch. Behind the tree Is he a monster? Is he a man? Is he a demon under Satan's command? Hear him cry Hear him howl Looking for someone to disembowel Claws like a hook Eyes like coal Feet so big they're gonna crush your soul They call him Sasquatch of your diamond ring your fancy jacket won't be worth a dime when you're sucking the blood right out of your spine
Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. <laughs> 